0: This is an ABC podcast. You're an animal lover, but you eat meat. You generally care about your health, but you smoke. You know you should pay your bills, but you splash out on a shopping spree instead. To get yourself to override your first instinct and go against it takes a certain degree of mental gymnastics. And the guilty, uneasy feeling you might get when you do is the result of something called cognitive dissonance.
1: We don't like being in sort of bad mood states, so we're motivated to resolve that tension by either changing our attitudes or changing our behaviours, and that's the, the dissonance.
0: But cognitive dissonance doesn't just arise when we do something bad it takes a certain amount of dissonance to get yourself off to the gym when you'd rather be lying in bed, for example. This is All In The Mind, I'm Sana Kadar, and today, producer Rose Kerr investigates the role of cognitive dissonance in our lives, when it's good for us, and when it's causing us harm.
1: I'm Dr. Kim Cordwell. I'm a lecturer at Charles Darwin University in the Faculty of Health. I'm also chair of a research group called Bad Behavioural Addictions, Alcohol and Drugs.
2: Kim, to start off with, what is cognitive dissonance?
1: cognitive dissonance is a experience where essentially our beliefs conflict with our actions so a set of beliefs we have or a held belief is in contrast with something we're doing and this generates what we call an aversive affective state affective state so a, a kind of negative emotional feeling that we're then motivated to try and resolve in some way um, we don't like being in bad mood state so we're motivated to resolve that tension by either changing our attitudes or changing our behaviors and that's the the dissonance
2: so when we're presented with cognitive dissonance this feeling that maybe our actions aren't matching up with our beliefs how does that feel like what kind of experience is the person going through
1: Like a lot of negative mood states, we might get a sense of sort of a a gut feeling, feeling bad, feeling embarrassed or ashamed. Um, We might get some physiological responses associated with that. And these have been picked up in in lab-based experimental studies as well. When psychologists have measured things like galvanic skin response and skin conductance, there's definitely physiological activity that's consistent with that emotional state of feeling bad.
2: That skin conductance, Kim's talking about, that's the electrical activity of our skin. And it can change through sweat.
1: so when we're when we're stressed, if you're watching, say Fight club or something like that, <laughs> or jaws and you get the sweaty palms and you sort of feel a bit out of out of sorts, that's your body kind of preparing itself. It's kind of similar to a fight or flight response.
2: What are some examples of when someone might feel it?
1: Well, it, it happened to me quite recently. I was I was staying at a at some accommodation, and I went to take my recycling out, and the mm. recycling bin was full. Mm. So I thought, well, what do I do? I could put it in someone else's recycling bin, but but yeah, I couldn't see another one around. I thought, well, I could get in my car and drive and find a <laughs> maybe a recycling skip bin somewhere. But at the end, I, I just sort of thought, well, it's not my fault the recycling bin's full. Um, I'll just put it in the regular bin. And then my, my partner came along and said, no, you can't do that. Put it in the car. We'll take it and find a recycling bin for it. So in that instance, I'm, I'm sort of adding justification for my behavior. I'm saying, well, it's, it's out of your control. And we know that control is a big factor in, in cognitive dissonance as well. Mm. You can sort of let yourself off the hook if, if it's not all on you.
2: So when you experience that discomfort of cognitive dissonance, you have a choice of either changing your attitudes and beliefs or your behaviour. Are people more likely to go one way or the other?
1: That's a really interesting question. I guess it can depend on what we call individual differences. So, so people's kind of capacity to, to think through, to reframe their awareness of their emotional states and things like that can feed into it as well.
2: Nowadays, cognitive dissonance is a concept commonly taught in psychology lectures by professors like Kim, but it all comes back to an experiment from 1959.
1: So there's a lot of deception involved in in social psychology and psychology experiments in general because we can't always tell participants what we're trying to find out.
2: There's two key players in this experiment. Festinger and Carl Smith, they had student participants come in for an experiment they called Measures of Performance.
1: And this was a two-hour study that involved really mundane tasks, turning things, arranging things for an hour. And then all participants were sort of told, look, this was an experiment where we're testing how people respond to this sort of task or these tasks when we tell them it's a really enjoyable, exciting you know, interesting experiment versus when we don't tell them anything at all and when we kind of send them in cold.
2: After the experiment, participants were debriefed.
1: And after that that debriefing, they said to the participants, well, I believe there's another separate study going on down the hall and they're gathering students' perspectives on participating in research or some such thing, you know, go down and, and check it out. And they're, they're really telling us we've got to send student participants there.
2: Little did the original participants know, this was all still part of the study.
1: There's quite a a script that's in the original paper. And it says at this point, uh, I think the experimenter sat back in his chair and lit a cigarette um, (laughs) and basically said, look, the the person we usually have to come and tell the next participant that this is really fun, enjoyable, exciting, they haven't turned up. So we need someone to do it. It can't be us because we're the experimenters. You know, we wear lab coats and, and we're known to students. Will you do it? And they either offered those participants $1 to do it or $20 to do it.
2: Festinger and Carl Smith were able to observe whether someone was willing to say the original monotonous task was exciting enough that someone else should participate.
1: When they analysed the results, they found that the people who were paid $1 rated the experiment as actually more fun, beneficial, enjoyable, valuable to science, etc., etc., than the people paid nothing at all, but also than the people paid $20. It's, it's a great aha moment, too, yeah. because you, you ask students, you know, how do you think this is going to go? Here's the design. What do you think will happen? And most say, you know, the person you pay $20 is going to give the the best evaluation of the experiment. The key finding is that the person paid $1 can't reconcile the fact that they've essentially sold themselves for for a mere dollar to to lie to this poor unsuspecting next participant. Um, Whereas the people who were paid $20 can go, well, I have to lie to this person, but at least I got $20 out of it. And also it's it's kind of part of their experiment and that's really important. And so they had more consonant or positive cognitions about it um, than negative, whereas the people who were paid a mere dollar, that really weighed into their thinking. So as a consequence to resolve that dissonance, they actually changed how they felt about the experiment.
2: Yeah, wow. So they literally changed their beliefs. They might have hated the experiment, but then they went, Oh, you know, maybe it's not as bad as I thought it was.
1: Yeah, in that in that short period of time from from spending an hour doing really mundane, boring tasks to being sent to that what they thought was a as a completely separate, distinct study. They they effectively changed how they how they thought about it and how they felt. It's a great experiment, the Festinger and Carl Smith experiment, to talk students through. It's a classic social psychological experiment, and in fact, you don't really see many of those these days, especially not ones with the kind of impact the original study had. So it's really useful in stepping students through the process of designing an experiment in social psychology, but also sort of discovering a phenomenon that is very applicable and very common to our everyday social lives.
2: the findings from this experiment challenged what was thought to be common sense in psychology at the time.
1: If you think back at the time, psychology was very much still dominated by what we call behaviourism, things like operant and classical conditioning, that that it's all about reinforcers in the environment and they direct our behaviour in most contexts. And around the time Festinger and Carl Smith proposed cognitive dissonance, there was sort of a thinking that there's got to be more to it than that. Um, and, and suddenly the the contents of our minds became very, very important in psychological thinking. We're not just kind of animalistically responding to things in our environment. In fact, we can shape our environment, our perceptions of our environment might differ between people and things like that.
2: Yeah, so that was starting to wonder if we're not just taking in stuff happening to us, we're processing it and all looking at it from a different perspective.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and that then became the kind of foundation for the the cognitive revolution in psychology and that sort of gave rise to social cognition and motivation and things like that. The contents of the mind became really important to think about.
2: And conclusions from this experiment still hold up today.
1: This was a revolutionary finding and it still kind of has its after effects in, in how we think about uh, compensation and employment, especially in the current context. It's not all about salary and, and superannuation, things like that. It's other things too, like the, the meaning of your work or the values of the organization. And these are things where cognitive dissonance can come into play too. You know, if, if you're if you're working at a company that, that promotes certain values and they're consistent with your own values and you're acting in ways that are consistent with your and the organisation values, everything's probably working pretty well. But when some of those things start to not align, we can experience dissonance in the workplace as well.
2: This feeling of discomfort that's experienced through cognitive dissonance can also be present in mental health issues like anxiety and depression. With your work as a psychologist, how often when you're talking to someone and they're describing something they're going through, how often are you thinking in the back of your mind that they may be experiencing cognitive dissonance?
3: Well, really, when I think of a a range of mental health conditions, especially ones involving uh, emotional difficulties, Mm. uh, they often do involve a significant amount of cognitive dissonance.
2: This is clinical psychologist Dr James Collard.
3: Cognitive dissonance, I see, as a completely normal thing that we all do tend to experience it. But it's how we deal with it and how we work to resolve it um, that can feed then into psychological difficulties people experience. And then if they become quite pronounced, you know that can move people into mental health issues. With anxiety difficulties, it may be the person has pressures that they put on themselves. But then, you know, worrying that they won't meet those pressures um, Mm. can be part of it. And then, you know, even after the fact, if they haven't lived up to the the expectations or the standards they set for themselves, um, how they reconcile that within their own mind then as well um, can be part of what contributes to their emotional distress.
2: How do you help someone process that? How can people escape that awful feeling of their beliefs and actions not matching?
3: Well, in a, in an interesting way, I guess sometimes we actually go towards creating even more co- or cognitive dissonance in other ways um, mm. to help them to resolve those difficulties or those um, discrepancies in their thinking, feeling, emotional patterns.
2: So it might sound counterintuitive, but sometimes the key to processing and moving past cognitive dissonance is more cognitive dissonance.
3: We use what we call psychoeducation, which is helping people to understand their minds better. And this is where, you know, from a simple point there, we have different parts of our minds that serve different functions. And these parts of our minds don't always line up um, towards the same kind of goals for us. And so, you know, just having an understanding of that and how that can contribute to this kind of cognitive dissonance is often a good starting point.
2: Then there's cognitive restructuring. Psychologists like James help people identify thought patterns and evaluate if they're working. Are the thought patterns actually helpful? And are they helping them move towards their goals?
3: And that then leads into you know more behavioural kind of strategies that we might set for them, um, whether that's behavioural goals um, to follow through and you know, working on resolving the cognitive dissonance in a way that is favourable to their longer term goals as well, and helping them to move through and out of the distress, hopefully.
2: Yeah, okay. So when someone's realising that their behaviours and their actions aren't lining up, with their beliefs and they know that changing the behaviour is going to make them feel better, it's taking stock of both of them at the same time and going, well, which one's actually going to help me feel better?
3: In the long run, yes. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing. It can often be a competition, say, between sometimes short-term drives or, um, you know, our survival drives which come through, say, with anxiety where we may worry that something's um, potentially dangerous to us and things like that. And so then, you know, if we listen to that side of the anxiety, we may then avoid approaching a task or an activity that we really want to be doing, perhaps in our lives, in a way that we you know, want to be developing ourselves. And so that's where, as I said, you know, helping the person to evaluate those kind of thoughts and question, perhaps, as I said, the logic of it, is it actually a dangerous thing? Um, or is it more of a challenge, just in a different way? I guess often we can see expectations and perfectionism perhaps coming through in those kind of ways with the anxiety that people may experience. And so, you know, questioning that side of their belief system then as well. And so being able to learn to be okay, perhaps with making mistakes along the way and being able to accept themselves Mm. um, as they try new things, for instance. And so that may then free them up to, you know, push through the anxiety and try the new activities perhaps that they're wanting to do cognitive dissonance is something that we do all experience. It's how we work towards uh, or how we work through that dissonance um, that's really a key thing then in terms of you know whether we get stuck in these psychological difficulties that contribute to mental health problems or uh, whether we're able to resolve them in a way and move forward you know towards the goals and interests and values that we have in our lives.
2: Kim's research in health psychology also uses an understanding of cognitive dissonance to understand why people have healthy or unhealthy behaviours.
1: The central question of health psychology to to me is why do people do things they know are bad for them? And similarly, the the inverse, the flip side of that is why do people do things that they know are good for them? Because that's useful as well. When we give people um, information that's contrary to their beliefs or their actions, that can cause reactance. People don't like feeling sort of called out on things. And a lot of health messaging is, is predicated on an assumption that all you need is information. You know, you just need to know the things you should do and shouldn't do, and that should be sufficient. But what social psychology tells us is that all of these things occur in a social context
2: ever found yourself dragging your body to the gym or on a walk because you were meeting a friend, even though you would have preferred to stay at home, you're not alone.
1: And in part, that's because you're motivated to continue to belong and participate in that group. And you'll feel bad if you skip training or you'll feel bad if you miss out on a class. A lot of approaches to health behaviour change too can be quite individualistic and we're finding that that sort of doesn't work too well across cultures. So cultures that are more collectivistic, that need to reach sort of group consensus and leverage sort of group bonds that are really important. Leveraging that, harnessing that in in health behaviour change can be really important for people from certain cultures.
2: What sort of justification do people give when they're going against some of those better health behaviors what kind of yeah justifications can they give themselves to get out of it a lot of the time
1: Smoking's the, the classic one that's often used as an example throughout the literature. Uh, we, we saw evidence of this. We were running an experiment of when the plain packaging legislation came through, and we measured smokers' attitudes, beliefs, and asked them a series of open-ended questions about their perceptions of, of smoking before and after that change. We found a lot of very interesting justifications for continuing to smoke despite the health warnings, despite the plain packaging efforts. And we found reasons like, well, you know, if it was really that bad for you, they'd ban it. Mm. Um, My great-grandmother lived till 105 and she smoked and drank whiskey every day, so I'll be fine. And in this sort of space, we can think too a lot about immediate and long-term benefits and disadvantages of engaging in health behaviors as well. So when the outcome is kind of more distal and and less certain, we tend to be less receptive to messages around behavior change. Um, When they're more proximal and and harmful, we tend to to listen a bit more closely. It's very much about message framing and a, a lot of our smoking messaging is about those long-term consequences of smoking but it's not things like you know if you quit smoking you'll be able to to run a hundred meters without doubling over and needing to catch your breath or you'll be able to get up the stairs or you'll be able to play longer with your kids or you can play sport again these are all short-term gains that we can get from changing health behaviors that aren't often emphasized in the broader public health messaging and this is why health psychology is so so important.
2: Is there a way to harness what we know about cognitive dissonance to encourage people to change their behaviour instead of their attitude?
1: It is possible. So with smoking, for example, some of the experimental work, and a lot of this is quite dated, has looked at Asking smokers to give a presentation about the harms of smoking. Oh wow! Um, and that's actually enough to induce dissonance, to change their attitudes, and also sometimes even change their behaviours. And it's it's important to note that attitude change is is quite highly regarded. It's it's the most influential cognitive factor. If you want to change people's behaviours, you really have to shift their attitudes first. So that's one way we can harness cognitive dissonance for good in the health psychology space. We can also add more consonant cognitions as well if people are struggling with that tension. So, for example, you might sort of resolve to to go for a run a few times a week, but you might also feel like running is hard and you feel sore afterwards and, and, you know, what's the point? You don't see your weight shifting over time, but you can add more consonant cognitions to that. You, you can think about the benefits you're gaining, even if you're exercising for sort of five or 10 minutes a week, it's better than nothing. You could run with a friend and that way running is, is less daunting because it's, it's also socializing and you value socializing. So you, you can definitely, do a lot of work in reframing how you approach these things. And, and small steps make big gains. Behaviour change is hard. It's, it's like anything. It requires practice. If it was as easy as we could just tell you all the things you needed to do, I, I wouldn't have much of, a, much of a job.
2: This is similar to reframing in a clinical setting, helping people challenge their negative attitudes or beliefs that are causing them distress.
3: So this may be where uh, the person's got some of these kind of expectations or demands of themselves where they were expecting themselves to perhaps be achieving certain things by the point in life they are. You know, I see young people perhaps in their 20s and 30s who they're expecting themselves that they should be set up, they should have a stable relationship, they should have bought their first house by now, things like this. And so they have these kind of expectations of themselves, but unfortunately their life may not have helped them to achieve those yet. Yeah. Uh, But because of the expectation they have, as I said, that sets up a dissonance with their perceptions of the reality that this is what I expect but this is where I'm actually at. And so that dissonance then may lead into negative self-judgments that really feed into their depression.
2: And so by recognising the mechanism that's going on, they can start to be kinder to themselves?
3: Yeah. And so working on accepting themselves and perhaps what they've experienced in their life and how it's not necessarily help them to achieve those goals um, and move forward to the level they would have liked to at this point is going to be really important then to helping them to be more accepting and more compassionate towards themselves, which can help then reduce that depressive emotional experience then.
2: Why as people is it so hard for us to separate our beliefs from our actions? Why can't we just Go forward and do the best action in the situation, even if it goes against our beliefs? Why does it make us do this mental gymnastics?
1: Oh, it's questions like that that make me wish I'd taught <laughs> philosophy instead of psychology. <laughs> I mean, it's it taps into a bit of everything. You, mm. How do we separate the mind from the body? And one perspective on, on cognitive dissonance is we feel it because it interferes with what we call our action tendencies. So it makes us inefficient actors. So, so that particular take on cognitive dissonance says that we need to resolve the dissonance to act more effectively in our environment. But in reality, our, our actions over time become reflective of who we are as people. I mean, personality psychology is very much concerned with this idea that people's personalities predict most of the time how they behave over time, over different occasions, we have people who are more extroverted, people who are more introverted, people who are higher in neuroticism, and, and these tendencies tend to shape how they behave. So we're very motivated to behave in ways that align with how we perceive ourselves, and in particular, how we're perceived by others. Um, so it's very, very hard to tease apart the, the, the action from the actor
3: behind it.
2: So... Is it possible for someone to avoid cognitive dissonance altogether?
3: No, and I would actually suggest the act of trying to avoid it altogether would probably increase it.
2: Why do you say that?
3: Because again, the act of trying to avoid that discomfort that comes with it will mean that people will probably then be sacrificing some of the things that they do really want to be happening in their lives. I think here, you know, social anxiety examples where, you know, a person may value social connection and they want relationships, but if they're approaching it through an anxiety framework and wanting to avoid that anxiety, that's arising from that cognitive dissonance that I want to have these social relationships, but, you know, I see social relationships as potentially dangerous. People could judge me. They may tend to personalise that to their sense of self-worth. And so it's not something I want to risk. As I said, they'll step back from that and not be able to get that. That will then set up a secondary process perhaps where, you know, the person will then be looking at themselves as not having these relationships in their lives um, where, as I said, that's what they really want and that's what they value. And so then they may move into perhaps judging themselves and, and they find that, again, more cognitive dissonance, that this is the kind of person I aspire to be, but that's not how I am where, as I said, that may cause more distress for them and perhaps a level of depression may then kick in as a secondary response.
2: Yeah. So it's almost like although cognitive dissonance is not a nice feeling to experience, it's kind of essential for our personal growth and achieving goals and also sometimes overcoming itself?
3: Yes. Yeah, that's right. And that's where part of as people grow up, for instance, I think, you know, learning to manage as I mentioned before, these different processes and aspects of our minds, and how to have them worked for us towards facilitating the achievement of our goals and living by our values and things like that, is a really central thing. It's your brain's way of telling you that, that you need to you need
1: to change one of these things. It's it's a very normal part of the human experience. It it's in our evolutionary history. We're very motivated to resolve tension and and. One sort of older way of thinking in psychology is about drive reduction. So you have a a hunger drive. So you get hungry. It motivates you to find food to alleviate those feelings of, you know, your rumbling stomach, nausea, just feeling lightheaded. It, it tells us you know, when we're hungry we need to go and find food to alleviate that state. And cognitive dissonance is very similar. It's just a kind of newer phenomenon in our, in our human evolution and it's very much reflected in how we, we use social information and that's where the, the self-affirmation, um, the, the self-concept perspectives on cognitive dissonance come from. They say we're, we're very enthused about presenting ourselves in consistent ways. Um, in inconsistent situations and acting in a, in a way that aligns with our beliefs. So it's it's not something people should be concerned about. I mean, it's a very transient, affective state as well. I mean, I didn't stay up thinking about how I could have put the recycling in the <laughs> non-recycling <laughs> bin. Um, if people are feeling like this a lot or it's, it's causing them, you know, some issues or distracting them from their, their everyday lives, then for sure they should talk to a mental health professional or, or a GP or get some advice on that. But for for most of it, it's, it's a very human and very transient and very normal experience.
0: That's Dr. Kim Cordwell, lecturer at Charles Darwin University. And you also heard from clinical psychologist Dr. James Collard. This episode was reported and produced by Rose Kerr, and our sound engineer was Beth Stewart. Now, before I go, I have some questions for you. Have you ever been scammed? Have you ever gotten a song stuck in your head and wondered why? Ever struggled to fall asleep and thought, there has got to be a better way to do this? Well, all of this and so much more is coming up on All in the Mind in the coming weeks. From how our brains interpret fiction, to the evidence and efficacy of EMDR treatment for trauma. And next week, you'll hear from two sleep experts on what we can do during the day to help our chances of falling asleep at night. But for now, that's it for All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next week.